morning. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson, and this is The Road Taken, and this is my wing woman, Louise Polanker. Nice to have you. <laughs> Are you having me? Oh, yeah. Nice no, that was, that was yesterday you had me. Oh, that's right. Oh, we've been show trading. We've been show trading. So yeah, yesterday right. I was on Louise's podcast, things I found online. Yeah, and Vicki bossed everyone around. <laughs> you know, Louise is so mean to me. I don't, you know, it's like... We're not standing there, like we're standing having, here. It's like having my mother as my sidekick. I just want to tell you. I, I think my mother would give me less abuse than you do. All right, so now it's... Oh, what is it doing? Okay, uh, so now I'm, check, I'm checking out the Facebook Live to make sure that we're not blurry and to make sure that, that we're happening live. And I saw a fro no, it's a frozen picture. What's going on? Is it? Oh, there it goes. Okay. All right. I'm so, sharing it. So there we are. So we're sharing it. Paul doesn't go on, uh, on, uh, on the Facebook. No. He's <laughs> a tweeter. He's a tweeter. So, um, okay. So anyway, so yes, on, on Louise's podcast yesterday, yeah. things I found online, mm -hmm. um, my excellent friend, I think you met Greg through me, no? I did. Greg Hope White. Fantastic. I met him and I, and I, I kissed up to him because he was uh, friends uh, with Norman Lear. There you go. So he was is. simply using him to get to Norman. I actually, we had Norman here before I knew Greg, ah. actually. Um, as a matter of fact, you forgot that. But um, you were here when Norman was here. Oh, was I using Norman to get to Greg? There you go. Anyway, we had a great time. It's a wonderful show. Check out Louise's podcast, Things I Found Online. Thank you. And Vicki is our special guest uh, on this week's episode, along with voiceover artist Randy Thomas and the lovely Greg Copeway. And the reason why Randy was particularly interesting was because she had just flown in from doing the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yeah. uh, 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 induction. She had rock sweat. So she had, she had stories about Howard Stern misbehaving yeah. a little bit with John Bon Jovi and being a little bit of a prima donna, which was so shocking. And um, anyway, blues, still moody. Blue, the blues are still moody. Do you know that I saw the moody blues for the very first time this year at the Hollywood Bowl? I went with another Bronx boy, Bruce Tenenbaum. Did you know Bruce Tenenbaum? You know Bruce? We're I pretending that's any Jew. Okay. <laughs> so, so, he so, said that's any Jew. I, I've known Bruce Tenenbaum <laughs> since sixth grade in Pelham Parkway, and we went and saw the moody, he took me to see the moody blues at the Hollywood Bowl. That's cool. And you know, so one of the moody's, which one? I, I love you them. You know, I, I'm going to say it wrong, but one of them can still sing his ass off. John, Justin. John. Justin Hayward. Yeah. The other one, not so much. Hey. I'm sorry, I but didn't. it was a little sad. He really needs to stop singing. No. He needs to just be moody. Maybe he was just having a bad throat day. I don't think so. But anyway, um, but they, it, was, it was amazing to see them. And, Make him some tea. And, and, and the... Um, the, the the LA Philharmonic oh played God. behind them. So they yeah. did that entire album and the LA Philharmonic was behind them. It was because their music is orchestral. It was it was and then there were fireworks. It was it was the first show of the season at the Hollywood Bowl. It was amazing. It was worth waiting for. Um, even though they weren't exactly in perfect voice at all times, but they had like the fabulous flute player. It was really great. Um, but anyway not Ray Thomas, because he just died. But yeah, no, not really. Yes, he, he, he was, he's, he's deceased. So I'm wondering if, if we can see who's joining us tonight because we it's been tricky. Facebook is jealous. Facebook's been changing the interface. Can you see who's there? Yeah. Steve Weiss, who else? Michelle Brody is watching. Hi, Michelle. Judy. Okay, so Judy, I Barbara am going to call Paul Stinky. I've already established that I'm Why calling him Stinky. Because you were smoking on the patio. <laughs> that is a little stinky. But Judy called him Stinky. Um, Kimmy D is Kimmy D is watching. Okay, Judy's watching. So anyway, um, what do I want to talk about? I want to talk about a, you know.
Paul and I both grew up in the Bronx, mm -hmm. and at the same time, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit older, a hair older. Yeah. Um, but we grew up eating the same people. Do you know? I don't know if you if this is a thing when you're not. Well, you're from New York. You're from upstate. I'm from Buffalo, New York. It's like being from the Midwest compared yeah. to New York City. Well, the thing about being from New York yeah. is that everybody that I know thinks the pizza they grew up with is the best. We think that in Buffalo. Okay, everybody I know pretty much everywhere thinks the pizza yeah. they grew up with, but mm -hmm. I know for a fact that the pizza that Paul and I grew up with is the best, was the best. Glorious pizza on Lyric Avenue, there was no pizza like that, right? There was no pizza like that. And then two doors down was Carvel, which was where we hung out, which was okay. where the boys like coerced me into smoking pot when I was 13, and where I was very cool and smoked cigarettes on the corner, yes. And what my mom, I don't know what my mother, th I, I would come home at like all kinds of hours when I was like a little kid. No questions asked. My kids, like, I knew where they were like no, every second. No one yeah. ever asked us where we were. No. Or when we were coming home. No. It was like, I okay, mean, they probably just... would have come looking for us the next day, I'm guessing. Well, when I was 16, I flew to LA to see my boyfriend, and I told my mother I was going to visit my father's girlfriend, and she never checked up on me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if you had a huffy, you could go. These were just different times. Yeah. But anyway, so Paul and I go way back. So I, I'm saying the odds that we were having a slice at the same time are astronomical that we probably, probably at least were. more than once. There could be photographic evidence. That there there could be evidence that. that we were having pizza yeah. at the same time at Glory's. And all kinds of other things. Because, you know, just walking on White Plains Road or being at the movie theater or any of those things could have, could have well happened. Paul has gone on to, to do... Some pretty extraordinary things. Yes. Very extraordinary things. I was I was going to tell you before. So uh, when Gabe and I saw The Aristocrats, we saw it with this very straight Republican couple. Stop. It wasn't a good... It wasn't, Are they okay? It, it, it wasn't good. Um, <laughs> we, we would like look over and she just looked like somebody had shot her mother. Yeah. She was not... She was not... There was not even a pretend I'm going to act like I'm smiling they hated us and I think our relationship changed after that. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a Trump Hillary thing. It wasn't a good thing. Yeah. Oh, before we even get in more into Paul, I have to I have to say a big thank you to Rick Smokey, our oh, our printer extraordinaire that we loved and, and Paul is on the tissue box. And he's in love with it. And he's in love with he it. I, I'm gonna it. definitely give him something to take home. Mm -hmm. And uh, Rick made this and quick impressions and my business cards and I show the same stuff, but it's really it's amazing, and he made Louise's business cards, he and did. he's made all this stuff. But the most, the most important thing about Rick is that he's just a really good, philanthropic, kind, lovely person who does good work in a timely fashion and will just be so nice, mm -hmm. and, and will give you a great deal. So Rick Smokey, we love him, and Nicole Venables, who I was like, okay, Nicole, I have to come in, I can't see, and she is so busy. Wait, wait, wait. Could you qualify? I can't see. She doesn't cure blindness. She, well, she, she cuts she, your bangs. She cuts my bangs. So, and every, she does everything else. And so it turns out she's doing a show during the week. And so all of her clients have her booked up on the weekends. I can't go for another month. If you, you know put what your I'm bangs gonna look together, like, put your bangs you, together like this, and then just make one little snip. No, I'm going to look like such a nerd. I, I, I'm going to look ridiculous. I'm, I'm going to be like, who's that girl? Harry, Sia, right? Is Sia the one with the hair in her face? Oh, yeah. Sia. So, and yeah. Harry's behind the camera. Thank you, Harry, for, for working. And Harry just celebrated his 24th birthday, and we had the most fantastic day. We, we drove out to Malibu with the, with the top open, and, and Harry was playing DJ, and we 
he got to have this big blue exotic drink. And, and does Harry sing to the radio? He does. He does. She doesn't let me. Harry, <laughs> Harry, Harry wants to be on The Voice. It's his aspiration to be, ah, to be on The Voice. And as you can see, he's doing his, his um, what's his name? His, oh my God, what's his name? His maroon five, oh, Adam his Adam Levine hair. Harry's oh, yeah. platinum right now. You want to come and say hello and show your platinum hair? Yeah. Come, sh come show everybody your platinum Harry, hair. He's rocking the hair. Harry's rocking the hair. He's platinum. <laughs> because Adam Levine did it first. That was, that was the thing, right? Did he influence you? No. No, no, okay. no, 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 no. Harry influenced He Adam. He went to white hair. I went to blonde hair. You're so blonde. Okay. I think Harry's I born. So anyway, we celebrated <laughs> Harry's birthday. And today, I'm really excited. Um, for those of you who've been watching, know that Samantha got to sing on Broadway a few weeks ago at The Waitress, mm -hmm. Waitress the Musical. And today, Waitress the Musical used Samantha's picture on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook mm -hmm. as their photograph to promote their, their upcoming Waitress, because they do this karaoke thing where a few people from the, from the audience get to sing on stage with the band, with, with the whole cast behind them, with the audience. And so Samantha's the, the face of Waitress yeah. the Musical today. Very which cool. Is very exciting. So the kids are thriving, they're thriving, which is great. Okay, so let's get back to Paul. So Paul, Paul. speaking of thriving, I have, I have like a very, Paul doesn't even know this, but um, he impacted my life in a very personal and extraordinary way. And I'm gonna tell that story right now. Um, Paul had a show called The Green Room, which was ahead of its time. Many shows have copied it since, but on one of the days, <laughs> I went to a number of tapings, but on one of the days that I went, Mark Marin, Gary Shandling, Judd Apatow, I can't even remember, there were a couple of other people on that very show that Ray were- Romano. Who else? Ray, Ray Romano was on that show, that's right. And Bo Burnham. And, but, but, I mean, it was, who gets those people in one room at the same time talk? It was crazy. But that was the second time that I met Gary, but it was pivotal because I gave him, I, I had met Gary first, uh, Carol Liefer was, he was interviewing Carol for her book. Were you using Gary to get to Carol? No, I was using Carol the to get I to Gary. The way I used Greg and Norman? No, I was using Carol to get to Gary. You know, Carol was doing Women Who Write the next week and her book had just come out, um, something with the, ter the terrorist women. I'm a big like, I'm a big like fan girl. Yeah, she's yeah. fantastic, but I, Gary was my, I mean, Gary, there's, there was nobody like Gary. Yeah. So um, Carol told me if I came down, you know, maybe she would be able, I think she said that, but anyway, she, she got us good seats and we were sitting right down front and I went up to Gary and I said, I have this thing women write and Carol's doing, would you do it? And he was like, no. And, uh, but he was very nice. And I said, but I went to the U of A because he went to the U of A, mm -hmm. grew up in Tucson. Anyway, so we had a little chit chat. That ended there. But then at Paul's taping of the green room, I went up to him and I had more time to talk to him, had a real conversation with him, and I gave him my card, mm -hmm. and he put it in his bag. And then he said, no. No, and like a year later, I was tweeting with him, mm -hmm. and he said, why is your card in my gym bag? <gasps> and I said, because we met at the green room. And I reminded him about the Carol thing and, and, and a Paul show, and it turned out that because of that conversation, where he also, on Twitter, in front of everybody said that I was hilarious, which is maybe the greatest compliment I have ever been paid in my life. But Gary ended up mentoring me through my first three Huffington Post pieces. And it was all because he had my card in his, in gym, his bag. gym bag. And he said, if I kept it, that means I liked you. Hmm. 
And so, how do we get your card into more gym bags? <laughs> how do we get my card? <laughs> why didn't I? Why is it my card and Judd Apatow? I met Joe that day too. But anyway, that 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 relate that day profoundly changed. He because I would spend hours on the phone with Gary, going over my pieces, and he he actually wrote a tag uh, on one of my pieces. Yeah, it was it was extraordinary. That's really cool. And for any of you who have not seen Judd Apatow's uh, two-parter on HBO about Gary Shandling, there it's just brilliant. It's just wonderful. But anyway, Paul. Paul, pretty damn extraordinary. He's adorable, and he was he was supposed to do this show about six weeks ago, and I was in Costco buying water for women who write, and I get the call. You know, when I, when our guest of the week, when I get the call two days before, I know it's never good news. Like, Vicky, I hate to tell you this, your good luck. I got, I'm dying up here. And he ended up getting like six weeks on I'm dying up there, some amount of time. So anyway, he's gonna be upcoming on I'm dying up there, but I'm dying you know, up here. I'm dying up here, right. The, yes, did I, yeah. It depends on where you're standing, I guess. It does depend on that. And, well, but you dying? know, people know Paul from all, Paul's been, he's a renaissance man, he's done all kinds yeah. of things. So people know him from different things. Mm -hmm. There are people that know him from like Empty Nest. Like that's, somebody put up one of his clips today from Northern Exposure, hysterical, a hysterical clip. Rob Morrow, great friend of ours, is gonna be here Tuesday playing guitar. Really? Yes, oh, you have to come cool. back if you're around. Rob's fantastic, I love Rob. And, uh, but, but Paul, he, the, he's, he's on the West Wing. I mean, it's like comedy series. He made The Aristocrats, which arguably one of the funniest movies that has ever been. It is the funniest movie ever. I mean, Gilbert Gottfried alone in that movie is just insanity. Sarah Silverman, Bob Saget. All of them, just every comic in the world is in that movie. Um, he had The Green Room, which was a, a round table discussion of comics. He has Set List, which I think is still, is Set List still happening? Yes. Set List is still happening, which is a brilliant, which I saw like Fred Willard do it. I saw all kinds of great people do Set List. I have a question. Is was he that, ever going to be on this show? He's going to be on like now because um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm like, did I get through the credits? What he also <laughs> author, he also did Satiristas, which is his book, which I have on the bookshelf. Look at this. Where is it? It's, uh, I, look, I didn't even plan this. It definitely pops. But it pops. Wait, be careful. You could spill some coffee. We, I spilled an entire... Louise, talk to them while you're Oh, here. well, we sp I spilled my coffee, and then I spilled an entire I thing. I have, I, spilled, I have the prop. Paul's book. Oh. It's a beautiful book. It's a fantastic book. Yeah, that's the it's, kind of book you um, want to have on your coffee and table. And boy, does that stand out on the, on the, on the bookshelf. Oh, it pops. Okay, so now it's time for us to bring out our guest. Paul Provenza. And I and I didn't even say like also like brilliant stand-up comic for like a million years before that. Hi, Paul. Hi. Let's act like we're saying hi for the first time. Uh, okay, yeah. Let's I'm, see if we I'm can no get call Reiner, but <laughs> goddammit, I'll take that kiss on the cheek. <laughs> Let's see if we can we we took a kiss like my picture with, with Carl. We'll see. We'll, we'll put that up. <laughs> we'll put that up. So I gave Paul a copy of my book. And spill coffee all over it. And he refuses to let me give him another book. He no, wants it all sticky. Story, but actually, it's not even that much. It looks just a little. Oh ugly. no, it looks ugly now. Oh, is this book any good? I go, I don't know. I can't read it. It's, just... <laughs> it's sticky. We've said but, that before. I know. But, um, yeah. Um, all right. So tell first, us... let me just say I, I, I'm not doing six weeks on I'm dying. Period. Okay. So it was just it was just two episodes. All right. Theoretically, I could come back for more, but they have I to like get picked it. up for two well, What's your character? What's your character? Uh, I play Brad Garrett's um, accountant, and uh, Brad he, looks so much more like an accountant than you do. <laughs> he is so great on that show. He's, you know what? He's great on everything. Brad Garrett may be one of the most underrated 
actors slash comic actors around. His work on, on Raymond is genius. Like he's so good that you didn't even realize how good he was for four seasons. I, I made more than four seasons. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's so good. Yeah. You know, yeah. It doesn't even show how, how, how amazing what he's doing is. And he's terrific on Dying Up Here. So we, we had a couple of really, really nice scenes together. And I play as a accountant who he grew up with. So we have uh, this long what, in relationship, New York? And, and I, actually I'm not sure, uh -huh. uh, uh, but uh, I'm the only person that can think he's a big comedy star, uh, right. an older comedy star right. on the series, and uh, I'm the only guy who can tell him he's being an asshole. So nice. uh, we have a couple of nice scenes where I keep telling him how he's running out of money and blah, blah, blah. So it was fun. It was really fun, and I, I would love to go back. I, this sounds like they, they're going to need to have you back. Yeah, you know, if you and your viewers... Oh start a huge, massive letter writing campaign. Yeah. Yeah. We are massive. Uh, it's fun though, because uh, there's so many comedians on the series. You yeah. know? Uh, was Kathy um, around when you were filming? Actually, Kathy was there for one episode. Kathy Ladman, uh, I Rick love Overton you. is on it, John Manfrotti is on it, Don Herrera is on Amazing. it, Joey Coco Diaz is on it. Uh, I, don't, I can't even think of, of all that. So when I showed up, they went, oh, it's so nice to have you here. I went, yeah, I guess they were up to the peas. <laughs> but um, it's a really fun show, really cool. That's Everybody's so excellent. Everybody's so super pro, and it was great. It was fun to do. So I want to go back and start at the beginning, but before we do that, I'm too excited to hear about what you're working on now because we started to, Paul started to tell us and I made him stop. I, wouldn't, mm -hmm. I was mean and I wouldn't let him tell Louise because I wanted us to be surprised, but I want to hear about it. What are you doing now? What are you well, I'm working on a documentary right now, and uh, we uh, um, probably will be doing some crowdfunding soon, so keep an eye out for it. Okay, guys. Uh, um, You're going to have to get back on Facebook for that, you know. Yeah. I know, I don't feel good about Facebook. You know what, I never really felt good about Facebook. Even when I was on it all the time, I was like, oh, this is bad. Why? It's like, <laughs> like, I, I, could, I could go like, oh, I could become a meth head you know, if, I, <laughs> if I keep doing meth like this, sure. You know? And um, it, I, uh, I am a Facebook I as, have a Facebook yeah. I know, I know, No, I get it. Every, you know, it's each their own. But, You're but uh, as, as Elaine Boozler put it, it's a clock sucker. Yes, it is. And I found that it was taking up too much of my time for very little in return, really, or, or very sort of self-indulgent. But, um, but you know what, Paul? Um, oh, we get to go live on Facebook, and I'm really I, grateful I, to I, them I, for I, that. I, I, Okay, <laughs> but you know, also I also have this thing about about the whole you know this privacy thing is not new with Facebook, and I've always felt like you know I don't like I would see these targeted ads come up and I go I don't like that they that they sent me that ad that really bothers me, or or uh, I, I would get stuff in my off. feed mm -hmm. that was really so you know they're know, reading your email. I don't know what the hell it was, <laughs> but it just made me feel like I don't I don't feel good about this. So I, I slowly but surely kind of backed off from it. I still have page up, and, but, uh, but uh, I really don't go that often. But on Twitter, see, 140 characters when I started. Now it's too many, yeah. I know, but you know what? I don't go above 140. <laughs> I like arbitrary rules. <laughs> uh, um, but that I like that short really and good, sweet. It was a good discipline. I, it was. Had, it really taught that me. That was what hooked me into Twitter. Yeah. I was like, this teaches you how to be economical yes. and how to really zero a joke down you know as, as cleanly as possible it was really fun it is really it fun. is it's a good it's a good exercise yeah but anyway so i i, I don't know the social media thing is just a little you know but the whole thing is paul you have to know that anything anything we are putting out anywhere on the internet our privacy has got to come on 
You don't need to be on Facebook. I don't know. No, but it's not even. It's it's not even. It's not like in the sense of like people knowing your business. It's just I just all that information is just it just creeps me out. I just you know we're 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 in a very uncomfortable place in terms of the powers over us. We are. All right. So tell us about the new project. Uh, So this film is uh, about my friend Andy Andrist. Okay. And Andy is a comedian. Uh, uh, You're familiar with Doug Stanhope, Mm -hmm. uh, who I think is just one of the best on earth. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Andy and Doug were very, very close friends. And Andy was one of a group of performers that Doug used to sometimes promote called Young Bookables. There's a documentary about them. Mm -hmm. uh, um, Andy is one of them. And uh, anyway, they go back a long, long time. And Andy decided that after a lifetime of weirdness, he decided that he needed to confront his childhood molester. So with Doug Stanhope's help, along with Chris Castles and Frank Chevrier, uh, they went, lured him out of his gated community in Florida. They found out where he lived. They lured him out of his gated community to have this as, as Doug puts it, kind of a low rent uh, to catch a predator. <laughs> uh, and he sat down and they had a confrontation. And, and they filmed it? And they filmed it, yeah. Uh, very voyeuristically, very, I mean, you, you know, there were no actual did, professionals did the guy, involved. Did anywhere. the guy know that he was being filmed? They told him. And he said flat out. He said, I, I, I'm probably going to be making a documentary about this or whatever. And that takes us to a coda to the story, which is that the guy sued them to um, uh, prevent them from doing anything with the footage and also sort of to suggest that they were uh, being usurious uh, and what have you. So it's a fascinating story and it's filled with all the kind of disturbing feelings and ideas that such a story would uh, encompass. Mm -hmm. But it's hilarious. Wait, what? Because Andy is hilarious, and he, did he go into it with that intent? To be hilarious? Yeah. He can't not be hilarious. He can't not be hilarious. Okay, give and me an so example. He, just of went, how? he went down to like the deepest uh, pain and trauma, and it came <coughs> out the way Andy processes anything, which is hilarious. I cannot imagine this. Yeah, and he uh, he does some stand up about it, and um, I shot some of that. Now, most of this footage I didn't shoot; they shot it on their own. Before like gorilla shooting. Yeah, it was oh. just it, not even like I said. They, they weren't making a movie; they were just documenting this thing. They just I literally see. there were no camera people. There's no studio. There's nothing. And right now, kind it's of just, like the way we do this. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right now, it's just me with hundreds of hours of footage in my little edit room. Just trying to make the mosaic look like what it. So now, how does the guy who was suing them? How does he factor into your film now? Uh, Well, he is the 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 molester. Right, but I mean, are you going to get sued now? No, because uh, a little bit of a spoiler alert here, but not really because it's all about the journey. Right. But um, uh, the judge ended up uh, giving. And the control of all the footage because in the confrontation, the gentleman, <laughs> for lack of a better word, boy, that is Kitty Fiddler, <laughs> um, uh, never actually denies that he did what Andy claims he did. He uh, and, and that then becomes some, an admission of, well, of guilt. 
it's not, but it, but it becomes the suggestion of an admission of guilt in okay. court. Uh -huh. Because any rational person, if I said to you, hey, you rape whales, you'd go, what are you talking about? No. ridiculous. And he never, never did any of that. And in fact, apologized at one point when Andy asked him. But it's a fascinating thing. And um, what was their relationship that he was in that position to do that? To, to how did how did Andy know him? Oh, he he befriended Andy's father. Andy's father was wheelchair bound, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, was at a VA hospital for some physical therapy and basically learning how to live in a wheelchair. So Andy's family were all sort of taking care of the father as well. And there was a lot of, uh, the mother was a little bit absent because of she was a social worker. And mm -hmm. so she was actually more involved in, in helping other people than she was aware of her own family. Wow, yeah, and, um, classic story. Uh, and this guy just apparently, he was another uh, person in recovery at this uh, VA hospital. Mm -hmm. And as Andy puts it, he saw the weak one in the herd and he moved in, you know. So it's a really fascinating story about a lot of disturbing things, but this is what's really exciting about it, is that it does create a paradigm, a different paradigm than we're used to seeing for as, as traumatic and um, devastating a topic. Mm -hmm. uh, it does create, it does project a paradigm that not everybody has to be morose about this. That, that you can deal with this through comedy, that comedy is therapeutic for some people. Because well, you hear a lot of people say, oh, that's not something you should joke about, what have right, you. Right, right. But, um, uh, you know, the people who I know who have been abused who do comedy are all like, what are you talking about? This is exactly why I am able to, you know, deal with this. And has it been comedy. therapeutic in, in that? Do you think very much so? Interestingly, yes. the court case actually turned out to be more therapeutic because, as Andy put it, he goes, "If I had lost that that court case, it, was, it would have felt like being raped again." Mm. Uh, so a lot of stuff going on, and very interesting, and, and, and very interesting in terms of uh, and the timing of it is pretty extraordinary right now too. Well, I've actually been sitting on this project for many years, many years, because, like easily five. Okay, because it's it's. Climbing Mount Everest is to create a comedy about this subject. Is is really climbing Mount Everest? And it's but a, you've been it's there, a lot of training. You've you've <laughs> been there before. I mean, Aristocrats is a most unusual. Well, comedy. you know, the, the, the best thing I can say about 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 this movie, which doesn't have a title at the moment, "Groomed" was the working title. Uh, but um, the, the best thing I can say about it is, is it's kind of like the aristocrats, except it's a true story, right. and that gives it a whole other edge. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. It's very weird. Uh, so uh, it's a very challenging and interesting project, and, and, and when we do crowdfund it, you know, I'll, I'll let you know so you can blast. Yeah, it yeah, out yeah. We'll, we'll blast it out to uh, to our viewers. So, so since we're here. I like to go sort of linear, but we're here and we're talking about the aristocrats. How the hell did that happen? Like, how did you in Gillette like say, okay, we're gonna make? How did that happen? How did that well, idea happen? Well, Penn Gillette and I had been talking for years about the aristocrats joke. Okay. We always thought it was hilarious. And, you did know, you Penn, have a version? I, I never had, no, in, I didn't have. I didn't no. have a version per se. Nobody actually has a version per se. They kind of make it just, up as they go along, right, right. and it's just you know who they are. Right. But both Penn and I had heard. Both Bob Saget and Gilbert Gottfried <laughs> do versions of the joke, and we would both howl at you know. I remember this one line from Gilbert or this one line from Saget, where we were both really, really laugh, and we would talk all the time about how funny it would be to just get like you know, 
eight or ten people doing the joke, and and you know, it just would be hilarious to watch. And we could you know make a VHS. This is how far back these ideas go. <laughs> make a VHS and give it out to friends for you know uh, Christmas presents or whatever. Uh, and we talked about it for years and years and years. And then I was in a particular point in my life where I, I kind of didn't exactly know what my path was anymore and I had been going overseas. I started doing stand-up on the international circuit and started going to all these festivals and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, uh, I was out working with Penn and Teller on a piece for their show and uh, two, three in the morning at the Peppermill Lounge, we just started laughing some more about the aristocrats and uh, Penn had started uh, studying jazz bass and uh, was very into the jazz sort of way of looking at the world mm -hmm. and he, he stumbled on the idea that you know with jazz uh, you know you can do a standard and it's like oh this is your version of the standard you know and and it can become a signature uh, um, but comedians they don't do old jokes right they, don't, they do their own acts mm -hmm. they don't do you know, things Standards. that are mm -hmm. So you try and avoid anything anybody else did, at least, you know, in my lifetime. Right. And, um, and we thought, except for the aristocrats, actually, is the, is the exception to the rules. We started talking about it again with this new perspective of it's kind of like a jazz exploration. So he said to me, he said, look, I'm gonna, I, I'll do this if you want to do it. And he goes, let's get, let, you know, if you can commit to doing this, I will commit to making it happen with you. And I said, all right, we'll do it. So the first thing we did was like the next like night or two later, Penn came out to LA and I called John Ross, who is the guy who did it in the bathroom at the improv, uh, Kathy Ladman, Bobby Slayton. Um, uh, we ran into Emo Phillips and he said, what are you doing? And I, I told him this crazy idea. He was like, oh, I'd love to do that, can I? So we went and did him. So we just had a handful of people mm -hmm. and we went home that night and just said, well, we have proof of concept, let's do this. So we just started making calls and uh, the people who responded was just ridiculous. I mean, I can't imagine anybody said no to you. Uh, well, quite a few people really? did. Really? Justifiably so. It's a horrible idea. <laughs> it's a horrible idea. Uh, in fact, Paul Reiser said to me at the screening, which he loved, he loved the movie and he was so proud to be a part of it, but he said, I gotta tell you something, if I ever thought this movie would ever have seen the light of day, I would comb my hair. <laughs> uh, uh, um, but what it was was basically just people saying, all right, this is a crazy idea, it's kind of funny, let's do so it. So people you know? didn't really think. This Nobody was... thought this would actually turn into anything. It was just kind of, it was kind of a pain in the ass to a couple of people because they said, oh yeah, that's funny, I'll do it, and then we would stop calling. Um, um, uh, um, and of course, Penn Jillette's name opened a lot of doors and, mm -hmm. and gave us a lot of credibility. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so it was my Rolodex, it was Penn's Rolodex, and then we just started uh, calling people that we thought in a million years would never do it, and they did it! You know, yeah. Bob Saget is such an interesting character because so many people in this world would never believe that he has a dirty mouth, right? Because if anybody who hasn't seen you know, it... His, he told me that his manager called him in the morning after the movie opened at, at Sundance and got mm -hmm. all the write-ups and everything. He said, Bob, you know how long we've been trying to change your image? And he goes, yeah. He goes, I think it just happened overnight. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but I've known Bob since 1975. Yeah, yeah. I met him, he auditioned for me. I was putting together little shows at the University of Pennsylvania where I went to college. There were a couple of people that were into comedy and there was no comedy venues, so we started putting together our own shows and doing them in, in dorm, you know, community rooms and, and spreading them out and eventually a couple of little places in Center City, Philly and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and uh, at one of the first ones, I think, that we did, this comedy team, walked in, and it was Sam Domsky, who also went to Penn, who is now the funniest dentist in the world. <laughs> and his partner was a guy who was studying film at Temple University right down the street. They were Saget and Domsky. Wow. And, uh, uh, so, the name alone is funny. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, so I've known, that, you know, that's the thing about Bob's, Bob's reputation as the, you know, all-American dad. Yeah. To those of us who knew Bob, was that was, was the joke. Yeah. Uh, because he's always been hilarious and dark. He had really to be dark. dark. Yeah, he oh couldn't like, become dark. He and had to have He that. would make the most disgusting things adorably silly. <laughs> and that's a gift. Yeah. You know what I mean? But anyway, so I, you know, um, I knew that about, about Bob. Uh, and so then, um, you know, we called Carlin after everybody that we shot. And we tried to always shoot when both of us could be there. Okay. And I was going overseas and working in the festivals uh, um, and coming back and spending two or three months just How, how much time this. were you filming people doing Five this? Five and a half years. Is that oh. so? Yeah. yeah. And finally, I had no Penn, idea. Finally, Penn said, you know, we could keep going forever. So let's just say arbitrarily yeah. now we're done. Uh, and then a couple of others came in into the picture, whatever. But um, after everyone that we shot, Penn would say, what do you think? We have a movie yet? I'd go, I don't know. Uh, what do you think? Do you think we have it yet? I don't know. And we shot Carlin, and on the way back to the car, we're lugging the stuff. And we have, so we have a movie yet? And I went, yep. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Because I knew that he had given me a skeleton. Mm -hmm. You know, the way he deconstructed the joke. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's it. That's our spine. Yeah, we definitely have a movie now. You know, I couldn't quite see a shape until Carlin so systematically deconstructed it. I went, oh my God, that's... that's okay, awesome. so I have to watch it. I haven't seen it since back in the day. I'm assuming that it's it's watch, that there's a place to find it? It's, I'm sure it's... There online. has to be. I'm sure For it's, any it's bootlegged anybody? all over the place. But here's the thing. Yeah. The distributor, Think Film, mm -hmm. uh, went chapter 11. Oh. Well, what happened was they, the, the guys that we signed a deal with right. for 20 years, distribution rights okay and we're now what, what year did it come out 2005 so okay. actually we're like 12 years 12 13 years in now okay uh, but uh, they sold the company to someone whose name escapes me but has a very controversial history there are a million oh. lawsuits around him oh. uh, he really kind of screwed up a lot he was kind of like a, 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 a what do they call it not a venture capitalist what do they call the guys who they sort of take companies and, and, and strip them of their assets and make them worthless. And Richard Beer and Pretty and, Woman. I don't know. I don't know what they're called, but he was that guy. Anyway, he, he did that with <laughs> he did that with Think Film. Basically, ran the company to the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, was forced to file Chapter Eleven, and part of the settlement was a forced auction of the rights that they hold. It was okay. like like four hundred and thirty five movies. Wow. Like ten Oscar winners. Wow. And uh, some you probably know. A good 20 25 percent of the titles uh -huh. uh, um, and um, yeah weeping camels and 
Crouching Tiger, whatever that was, the okay, camel good. one was. Oh, yeah. Crouching uh, Tiger, no, Hidden Dragon. No, not that one. The, the oh. Weeping Camels. The, something weeping of the Weeping cam Camels. I don't remember it Weeping Oscar Camels. Weeping Camels. documentary. Uh, short Bus. Uh, yeah, Mason, a lot of Mason big movies. Reese is here. Do you, know, you have to know Mason. I know, I know, I know Mason. Mason. Mason's watching. Hey, Mason. Yes. What's up, brother? How you feeling? <laughs> Oh, uh, he just so, had a birthday. Happy birthday. Happy, happy birthday, birthday, Mason. You're like 15 now, right? <laughs> yeah. Such a big boy. Oh, such a big boy. Mason um, used to play drums when I was a rock and roll promoter. He used to play in my club years ago. Mason's hilarious. Yes. Uh, um, uh, I forgot what I was saying. You were saying about so, so Crouching Tiger. Okay, no, no, no. no. So, there, so, they wanted, <laughs> so there was a forced auction of all the assets, which include the rights to all of these films. Yeah. And... Um, uh, the guy got an injunction against the forced auction. So basically, every movie at Think Film, when they file that chapter 11, mm -hmm. is in limbo until the end of the contract. So we had um, a couple of uh, companies uh, approach us for like a 10th year anniversary and do a whole reuse. Oh no, and you can't do anything? Some more extras, you know, talk to some younger comics and do, do a, wow. a whole bunch of stuff around it. And we couldn't do any of it. Because oh, legally, man. we're in this bizarre. So you have thing. another like eight years to till you can finally yeah. do something with it. Mm -hmm. Although the twentieth anniversary, well, you can, who knows what you can do with it then? So okay, so yeah, but by but then, you know, the stuff that happens in that movie will be happening in, in Congress. Oh boy, it already is, right? Oh, right. So yeah, the, yeah. Um, everybody's getting fucked. But so before we get off um, the aristocrats. Favorite? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming SAG. It's got to be a favorite. Yeah, it's hard for me to pick a real favorite. It's like your kids. Which is your favorite kid? Well, it's also, you know, so many of them are really good friends of mine. Yes. And, just, and, and I really do appreciate the jazz aspect of it, which is, it, it, it just Riff. different. Yeah. You know? But uh, the ones that are real standouts for me are Billy the Mime, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Otto and George. Uh, um, Sarah Silverman, of course, Saget and Gilbert, mm -hmm. that goes without saying. Uh, and um, um, uh, Rick Overton, mm -hmm. who does a nice short, sweet one. But I, Rick Overton is the person that first told me the aristocrats Get way back in the 70s when I was a young baby comic. Wow. And so, do you, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, do you have a version? I don't have a version. Okay. All okay. I can tell you is that it would include the phrase arcing ropes of cum. That's it. <laughs> that's it. That's all I have. I know no, that's, that's what I'm doing. If I ever have to work on it, I start with that. I work backwards from that. That's Okay. I'm, I'm but you know, people said, why didn't you do a version of the movie? And I was like, the movie is my version. I don't know what I could possibly do that wouldn't be you know, sadly gilding a lily. But, um, no, yeah. you did it perfectly. Um, it was perfect. I thought Penn Teller's was hilarious too. It turned into a magic trick. It's, <laughs> oh, Matt King, who did the card trick. Yeah. I have to see. I have to see it. Again. And Doug Stampo, who does it to a kid that everyone assumes was his kid, or assumed at the time was his kid, but it wasn't. It was just it was the kid, of, uh, my manager at the time's kid. <laughs> it was like a random kid. kid. Yeah, we we asked him to do it with a kid. Because um, Andy, Andy Richter had done it with his little girl, and uh, somebody had done it with their child, and it was and we built this sort of thing about people with their kids. Uh, and uh, that second person that I mentioned, actually, his wife had a problem with it, and he said, you know, you got to get out of this. So he asked us to drop him out, and so I was scheduled to shoot Doug Stanhope, and I said, hey, Doug, I know this is out of left field, but... 
Could you, you got a kid? With a kid? Just do it with a kid. We'll give you a kid. Can you just do it with a kid? And he went, oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> so we went and, and, and my, man, my manager at the time showed up with, with his kid. And Doug was like, what is that? I'm looking for like a 10-year-old. Unless someone can understand the language. It's not funny unless they understand how horrible it is. I was like, Doug, it's the only kid I got. <laughs> That's hysterical. Oh, God, I have to find it tonight. All of you out there, if you haven't seen it, it's must-see. Absolutely. I hope it's Oh, and another one of my favorites is yeah. Tim Conway, who is just really oh the end credits. Yeah. Because he just did this long uh, Tim Conway, right? Tim. It's Tim Conway. And Chuck McCann, R.I.P., oh, the great Chuck mm -hmm. McCann. That was the beauty of it, too, was that we had such a mix of people. Larry mm -hmm. Storch. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, I, I didn't relate to my parents about a lot. Mm-hmm. But we all thought that every Storch was hilarious, <laughs> you know. And so, yeah. and so I, he was like my mother's favorite comedian. Yeah. Really? Yeah. F Troop, so, Troop thing, right? F Troop, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he also did stand up, yeah, and he, he was did, a, right. a, a classic, yes. you know. Uh, and uh, and so it meant a lot to me that he was in the movie. That is the I, I said he'll be the only thing here that my mother's happy about. <laughs> uh, and he's one did of, okay. So now, what did your mother think of the film? I don't really know. I, I'm not sure. I will tell you this though, that she, when it opened in, in her area mm -hmm. of Florida, she had 20 of her closest friends all going oh. together. Oh my God, that's worse so, than my story with so, the other couple. Oh. So I flew down to Florida to be there because I, I, I just felt like this, this, this needs some sort of, uh, <laughs> Buffer. Yeah, a buffer. I had to call the only film he's got a lot of buffers. <laughs> yeah, he's some sort of buffer. Uh, so I sat there in the midst of these people oh and, and, and had uh, 9 1 on my phone. Did they laugh? Was many of them, yeah, many of them laughed. Many of them got what it really was about. Many of them, you know. It was funny because we had a, uh, a private screening at Penn's house in Vegas at one point, and a couple of the a couple of friends of his were like, "Yeah, you know, my dad's in town," and uh, so sure, bring him. So we brought him, and before the movie, he's like, "Look, just want to let you know that this is, hard, you know, it's obscene, it's horrible, the language is awful. Just, just a heads up, whatever." And the guy looked at him and he goes, "Fuck you! I was in the Navy, I fought in World War II. You really think this is there's anything in here that's going to upset me?" And you know that was like, oh yeah, we always forget about that. You know, we always forget that. You know, People our parents, mm -hmm. uh, they lived a fucking harsh life. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so uh, yeah, it wasn't actually really that that big a deal. I mean, a lot of them got it, and some of them were like, you know, oh, I like the old comedians who didn't use such language. But then whenever anybody says that to me, I always tell them, well, let me tell you a story about Steve Allen. Wow. And Jack Benny. Tell the story. I want to hear it. And this Steve Allen himself told me this story. Oh, oh come God. on. Really? S Steve Allen told me this story. Steve Allen used to be on Comics Only, which was like where it was like the Milton Berle show of Comedy Central. Right. Before Comedy Central was even in every market, we were one of the first original programs. Actually, yeah, it was only in like did. 15 markets at the beginning, yeah. right? It was yeah. I remember we did a whole Judy Tenuta, and I, I dropped oh. Judy Tenuta. Uh, from the, the tower in Times Square, like the ball on New Year's Eve, to celebrate the launch. That was at the bottom, they would switch it on in New York City. 
Um, it was crazy. Uh, so it was really, uh, you know, nobody knew what was going on, which was how we got away with doing a lot of stuff on the show. But anyway, uh, Steve Allen used to come and do the show. He did oh. like five, six, he did a couple of interviews, and then he did a bunch of sketches for us at you know, one point, because the premise was, it's supposed to look like a talk show, but nobody actually ever gets to do stand-up. So every once in a while, I would come out as if I were doing an opening monologue, but I would never finish it. Mm -hmm. Something would happen so that we never actually do a monologue. Uh, and at one point, I keep flubbing a joke, and, and, and I go back, and there's this big red box that says, in comedy emergency, break glass, and I break the glass, and Steve Allen steps out <laughs> and goes and does a joke. Um, uh, so... He was incredible. He was great. He was wow. up for everything, and he was so warm and friendly. And, That's uh, so good to hear. Yeah, but he told me this story about okay. it. He said he was, on, he was on a plane, and he's in first class, in the back row of first class. And he notices sitting across the aisle from him, in the front row, is Jack Benny. Wow. So what are the odds of that? So he's like, the two of them on before one we take off, before we have to fasten our seatbelts, I'm going to go up and say hi to Jack. So he starts to get up and he gets knocked back into a seat by Gina Lola Brigida. What? What kind of flight is this? Uh, Showbiz. <laughs> Showbiz Airlines. So Gina Lola Brigida goes down and sits across the aisle from Jack Benny in the front row of first class. So they take off and finally, bing, you now you know, walk about the cabin. He loosens his seatbelt and he's about to get up to go talk to Jack Benny. And Gina Lola Brigida comes back up the aisle and goes into the restroom. And Jack Benny watches her walk down the aisle and goes, and catches Steve Allen's eye and goes, I'd like to put my cock in her mouth and make her say her own name over and over and over. <laughs> so that's what I always tell people who say, oh, I like the old guys. Yeah, off camera, what? they're no different. They're no different. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That is not what I was expecting to come out of Jack Benny's mouth. I know. And wow. when's the last time anybody mentioned Gina Lola Brigida? I love Gina Lola. She was hot. She was a hot mama. Yeah. I, I get why he wanted that. All right. So, wow. I, you, um, you, you have to have unbelievable stories from, the, from all of the different shows you've done in all those different situations and the clubs. But let, let's go back to how you are very entrepreneurial and, um, and you're, you're an innovator. I mean, you really That's are. That's very kind of you. I don't know about entrepreneurial because I think to really call yourself an entrepreneur, you have to be financially successful. I don't know about that, but right. I wouldn't know about that part right. of it. What we I need do to define know, our terms. But I mean, you've, you've directed, <laughs> you've produced, you've performed, you've been behind, you've, you've done all the aspects, you've booked it, you... Well, you know, it's interesting because now, if you're going to be a stand-up comedian, mm -hmm. now, if you started now, you would have to do all those things. You'd have to know how to do all those things. And you can now because, quite literally, the means of production are in the hands of the workers. Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, Technology is the ultimate socialism. Not really, but it sounded like something that could work out. Um, um, uh, and now you have to do all of that. I mean, that's a really, really interesting thing about, you know, seeing the younger generation of comics is like they're all producing and, and directing and writing and but shooting. that was and, something that you've been doing before it was kind of like the thing that everybody did. Well, I, 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 I had opportunities to learn a lot of things. And I always, you know, when I was a kid, and I wanted, I, I've always wanted to do stand-up since I was, I, I think I recognize knowing that I wanted to be a comedian at about seven or eight. I was going to say, okay, so what, what sparked that for you? 
Well, I used to watch the uh, Ed Sullivan show every Sunday. We'd have uh, Sunday dinner with my grandmother mm -hmm. at her house, and she absolutely adored the Ed Sullivan show. Who didn't? So we would always sit and watch the. She claims it's because she didn't understand English that well. So you know, you get to dance some bears and ballets, and plate spinners, and Chinese acrobats. Right. So she could enjoy the show without understanding a word of English. Mm -hmm. But Ed Sullivan always had at least one, sometimes more than one, stand-up comic on Alan the show. Alan King. Uh, oh my God. It's where I discovered Charlie Callis. It's oh, where yeah. I discovered Lee. We can go on and on about that. Lee, oh God, London Lee. Do you remember London, London Lee? Yeah, I remember oh London God. Lee. Yeah. So that was yeah, that was the thing about that era right. is you, you know now then okay sixties seventies mm -hmm. uh, even into the eighties a bit um, you had old school and new school together. Mm -hmm. Like you could watch Mike Douglas in nineteen eighty two, mm -hmm. and he would have you know the hot new young Freddie. Actually, I think Freddie might have been. Dead already, mm -hmm. but okay, late seventies. Okay, you know he would have Freddie Prinze mm -hmm. on the same show with Alan King, right? You know, and you got to see old and, and young, right, right. all the time. Mm -hmm. So when I came up, I was seeing the old school comedians, the ones who, you know, the Borscht Belt guys, mm -hmm. the ones who made television, mm -hmm. all of that stuff, as well as you know Robert Klein. And, and, and Chi Chi Chong, mm -hmm. you know, and, and Chris Rush. You'd see them all, all the time. So as a comedian, as a, somebody wanted to be a comedian, you got the, the modern influences and the old school Okay, so as a seven-year-old kid, who was turning you, like who was the... Well, here's the thing, okay. is I would watch the, the Ed Sullivan show. Now, I, my, my um, immediate family at home was, was very authoritarian. My father was very severe. Uh, and he had a great sense of humor mm -hmm. and charmed everybody. He had a lot of friends and a lot of people loved him. And, you know, but as far as um, you know, an Italian father goes, he was somewhat severe. Yeah. And um, very much of the children should be seen, not heard mold. Uh, and what did your father do? Well, he was a chemist. He was oh, an industrial wow. chemist. He worked on. That's uh, pretty serious. Yeah, he, he was like involved with uh, nylon. He was in the textile industry. Mm -hmm. uh, he did a lot of things with the polyester and, and all sorts of chemical fibers and stuff. Um, and uh, he was also career national guard. Mm -hmm. So he was military and a chemist. Mm. And uh, when I saw the great Santini, I, I called my sister right afterwards and go, "You're not going to believe this movie." The Great Santini was my father on twelve. Wow! And, you know, I mean, it was it was definitely not Michael my father Keith. wasn't that severe, yeah. but the impulse behind that was was my dad. Uh, anyhow, wow! Um, so I would watch the Ed Sullivan show, and the comedian always fascinated me because I thought this is a guy who's speaking his mind, saying what he wants to say. He doesn't have to shut up. Mm. And everybody is wrapped. Everybody is focused and wants to hear what this person has to say. And I wow. think that spoke to like, wow, that's a panacea. Wow. And so that's that's how I know. It, you know, that, that's the immediate hook into it. And then, just to take it another level, I remember going with my parents to. I think it was a drive-in actually. To see the Nutty Professor, mm -hmm. and uh, I was a big Jerry Lewis fan, mm -hmm. and it just dawned on me. See, I had amblyopia when I was a kid. What's that? More commonly known as lazy eye. 
Okay. Uh, in fact, still my eye sometimes will, will cross in. I had surgery when I was a kid and all that stuff. But um, uh, as a result, I didn't have three-dimensional vision. So all my depth perception, yeah, because you're only using one eye and three dimensions come from the joining of two, two eyes. Interesting, okay. I, I wore an eye patch for years to try Oh, that must have been, that must have really oh, gone over big. It's a whole bunch of, yeah, there's oh, a, yeah. Lot, a lot of that. No wonder you're coming um, uh, And uh, uh, so all of my depth perception was learned. It wasn't, wasn't intuitive. Like I didn't know for sure that that was maybe about an inch and a half behind this. So I would just sort of like, oh, oh, the last time I saw something with that kind of relationship, it was much closer than I thought. So it's probably closer than I thought. That's, I'm, I'm deconstructing right. it for you, but that's, that's what it was. Uh, so I was constantly bumping into things, falling over things, tripping, knocking things over. It's like when you spilled the coffee, what did I say? You think that doesn't happen every day at my house? <laughs> uh, um, uh, I, so I was, you know, Captain Klutz and, and mm -hmm. um, you know, things being what they were back in the uh, 60s, mm -hmm. um, there was no sympathy for, oh my God, you have like a serious medical problem here. It was like, you know, learn to be, learn, learn how to do this right. Oh. It's up to you to, to improve your situation. And you know, it was, it was very severe. Uh, um, this sounds very familiar. So uh, I would get yelled at, I would get in trouble and I would mm -hmm. get mocked for something that I really didn't have any control over. Mm -hmm. um, and I would watch Jerry Lewis, and I would go, Oh God, oh who's my your God? God. <laughs> he is doing everything that I get in trouble for, and everybody loves him. Yeah. And people are howling, and they think he's just hilarious. So I made a conscious decision at the age of maybe seven uh, that if I knocked something over or fell down or whatever, I would make it look like I did it to be funny. Ah, nice. And that's how it all kind of snowballed. Did you, were you a physical comedian at the beginning? You know, I, 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 I was I kind of. I mean, uh, uh, I wasn't, I wouldn't, you know, I wasn't like Peter Kotofsky. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, uh, you know, like Michael Richards. I wasn't a physical mm -hmm. comedian in terms of that's the category you put me in. Right. But I did have a, a, a lot of physical life because I'd also studied acting and, um, you know, I had done mime and movement. Okay, so let, let's let's hear so about that stuff. A lot of the physical, uh, I would physicalize a lot of things. And I also loved that Robert Klein would, you know, talk about buying an apple at the grocery store and you could see the apple. Mm -hmm. Another theater trained comedian, mm -hmm. by the way. Uh, um, I loved that. And so I, I was like, oh yeah, I want to do some of that too. And so I, I definitely had a physical life for sure, but I wasn't like a pratfall guy right, or, right. or anything like that. So, okay, so you're a little kid, you decide this is what you're gonna do. How do you, and, and because you were just saying how in college you were already producing shows. So how, how, how did you make this happen for yourself? Well, I just uh, became consumed with comedy and all its iterations. Uh, um, my cousin would take me down to the 24-hour Marx Brothers marathons at the Folia. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just addicted to the Marx. I knew every word of every Marx Brothers film. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I would go to the opening days of Woody Allen movies, mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, Buster Keaton. Uh, again, growing up in the 60s, after school, turn on the TV, 
you had Jack Benny, you had the Honeymooners, you had I Love Lucy, you had all those great old classic things. So it was just comedy everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and then how many talk shows were there back in the day? There was Dinah, there was Merv, there was Mike, there was uh, John Davidson. There was, I mean, in the daytime alone, there right. were like half a dozen talk shows. Right. And then at night, you had The Tonight Show, you had Joey Bishop, mm -hmm. you had uh, Dick Cavett. You know, you had Tom Snyder uh, later on. You had uh, all these people that always had comedians on their shows. So it was real easy to see a ton of stand-up comedy on television. Plus primetime was the Smothers Brothers and all, and that was the week that was, and all of that stuff was going on. Right, and then in the 70s you had sitcoms like, well, you had All in the Family, which is, I mean, if you can't learn comedy, if that doesn't seep into you from watching things like that, and Maud, mm -hmm. and uh, um, and then you had the MTM stuff, you know, Mary Tyler Moore and and, and Rhoda and uh, uh, um, Cheers, you know, which came a little bit later. But my point was that there was a lot of very different kinds of comedy to be had. Mm -hmm. um, TV now has almost no stand-up. There's almost no stand-up on TV. It's all relegated to mostly online or you know Netflix. Or mm -hmm. Even HBO doesn't do stand-up specials that much anymore. Right. They do special events, but you know they used right. to be yeah. Showtime used to be stand-up, 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 stand-up. Um, you had all of those. Uh, the Robert Klein. Robert Klein's Klein Time. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Um, that was a treat to do that show. It was great. Let me tell you the story about doing Robert Klein's show. My mother was in the audience sitting next to Robert Klein's mother. Oh, stop. Yes. And, and they chatted at some point, and I do my thing with Robert Klein and have an amazing time uh, because it's Robert Klein. It's he Robert was like Klein. my big, I mean, it was Klein, Carlin, and Woody Allen were the three, that, and Steve Martin a little bit later. Yeah. But they were the ones that were like, this, I want to reach this level of good, uh, this level of great. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know? And um, um, so I don't know if you remember um, uh, Klein's first album, Child of the 50s? Hell yes. Okay, we remember that. Well, Robert did side? Women Who Write in New York, by the way. Oh, uh, great. Uh, I mean... Um, uh, do you remember the poster that came with the album? I don't. It was a picture of, it was an overhead shot of him lying in his childhood bed with all the toys and things that would have <laughs> okay, been in his room as a, as a child of the 50s <laughs> yeah. and stuff. Uh, uh, and it came with the album. Anyhow, my mom was sitting next to... poster never... I never got to see the poster. That maybe. My mom was sitting next to Robert Klein's mom and she turns to him, to my mother at a tape break. Klein's mother says to my mother, oh, you know, I think my son really likes your son. I can tell. I think he really thinks he's something special. And my mother said, my son had a poster of your son over his bed. <laughs> 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 uh, but anyway, so they were they were just they were stand up everywhere. It's not it, it's much harder to find now. I mean, even the, the late night shows, um, yeah. you know, they do a couple a week at most, right? And then for a long stretch, there, Leno almost never had comics on. Letterman a long stretch without having comics on. Right. He, he changed that in the later years mm -hmm. of the show. Brought him on, you know, a couple a week. Um, but so I had all of these influences, and so uh, what, when when uh, when are you when did you write your first joke? When did you get on your first step? How did it I, start? Well, for you? when I was uh, I used to go to the improv because back then liquor laws we don't care we don't care. I used to have to, I was like sixteen and I would be drinking tequila sunrises and you know 
uh, out with the... Although legal drinking age in New York, to be fair, was 18. So, it was 18, yeah. you're right. So it was right. easier to kind of get... A, I, I Let think. me explain to you a little bit later the difference between 16 and 18. It counts. <laughs> uh, anyhow, so I used to go to the improv, and, and uh, I remember seeing Elaine Boozler when she was still singing. Wow! Um, yeah. Um, I don't I remember, know if I knew that. I remember seeing... Larry David, uh, who they used to put on late night, right? Yeah, so. when they wanted everybody to go home, so they just <laughs> close close the room. They, they used to put Larry on. Uh, and I saw some amazing stuff. Franken and Davis. I saw back then. Wow. Al Franken and Tom Davis. Wow. Um, uh, I, I the, the list could go on and on. You have to. Now, are you memory, doing? But, are you doing your own version no, no, this time? I'm, no, I'm just a kid going. All the just time. a kid going. Because I'm, right now, I'm looking at this going, when do I see live comedy? I've only seen it on TV. Right. The only time I'd ever seen live comedy before then was a fluky thing when I was on a trip to Florida with my family. We had a, a family vacation where you drove. Of course. Uh, and rest stops were calculated oh, yeah. in. And, uh, <laughs> oh, when that thing flew out the window at 80 miles an hour, we were like, this is probably, yes. <laughs> the schedule. <laughs> Anyhow, um, uh, I, we stayed at a little place way up in the, off the strip, way up where there's those little motels that were built like in the 50s or something, you know? Uh, not in the fancy like Fountain Blue. Right, right, right. We were up in the strip. And um, this little place had a little showroom off the lobby, and there was a big poster of this comedian named Tubby Boots. <laughs> And if anybody like can show me any, if anybody can send me anything Tubby Boots related, I would love it. <laughs> Tubby Boots was an old school cat. He's working this lounge in a really off the beaten path part of the strip in Miami. So he wasn't, you know, he was like me, you know, he was like, it's kind of gig I would do now. Uh, um, um, and his whole thing was, he was a big, big, he was a huge, heavy guy. Well, he's a huge, and he had, no, it's okay, it's okay, okay. I'm, I'm getting there. Okay. And his uh, promo picture was him in drag as a stripper with pasties <laughs> on, on these huge, pendulous boobs because he was so fat. And um, it was adults only, you couldn't go in. But I snuck into the place when no one was like, like, I don't know, maybe he came out, whatever, and I picked the, oh, nice, keep them coming. Tubby boots. Uh, <laughs> uh, I snuck into the place, and it was, um, you know, that 60s architecture where it was like, a, you know, chrome and glass. Oh, sure. And so the outside was all glass, but they had put black velours in front of the, the glass <laughs> to close off the lounge. Right. And I walked in the door and snuck between the glass and the velour so that I could, if anybody had walked around the side, they would have seen me there, you know, but, um, so I could watch the show in this place I wasn't supposed to be, and I got to see Tubby Boots. So that's the first comedian I ever saw live. Couldn't really draw a lot from it. <laughs> it spoke to me because it was stand-up comedy, right. and it was the first, I was in a nightclub. He I mean, has I pasties maybe... on. He's wearing. Yeah, you. Were, I'm telling you. I'm not making any of this up. Show, show the, show the. He wore pasties. And and, and are people were people laughing? Yes, because he was he was hilarious. He was, he was an old starka, and he had this fat stripper thing, and I think he did a couple of other characters. Um, uh, but anyway, it was like it was like oh my god, this is a nightclub. 
this, I'm in a nightclub. I'm in. And they're watching, like, you know, I'd only heard about this stuff on TV. Wow. And um, uh, so I must have been about 13 uh -huh. at the time. Uh-huh. So it wasn't until, you know, I was like 16 or so that I started going to the improv that I was seeing live comedy. And I realized that, wow, when you see live comedy, it's amazing. And I don't know any of these people. There's incredible comedy out there that I, you would never oh, see right. on television. Right, they haven't been on TV, yeah. they're now famous, but yeah. they're hysterical. And that just sort of opened up a whole world to me of mm -hmm. like, oh my God, there's a whole thing here that I don't know anything about because I've just seen it on TV. Right. Um, and that kind of prepared me for, I had a certain romanticism in my, in my stand-up career, like when I was on the road 40, 45 weeks a year, mm -hmm. when, during the boom, during the comedy boom. Um, you know, I had this sort of romantic notion of like, wow, this is what it was like. I wish this was like little theaters because then it would be like I was in vaudeville. <laughs> so know? so how, how did you transition from being the kid in the audience at the improv to being the guy on the stage? I uh, went to the open mic night. I went to an audition night. And um, uh, I How had, did you write an act? How did you construct your act? Well, interestingly, there, I, I was so confused about how to do this. But I just was, I was fearless. I was just going to do it. I didn't know what the hell, I, you know. At this point also, I had made people laugh. I mean, it was obvious so that you, this was a were thing you the, Were you the funny kid in, in school? Yeah, I yeah. was, yeah. for the most part. I wasn't always the funniest, okay. but I was definitely among them. Okay. Um, and um, in fact, when I, uh, when I went to high school, uh, I worked for the student organization at one point, which, mm -hmm. you know, puts on dances and special events and all this stuff. And we would have to publicize these things. And the best way to do it was at uh, lunchtime because every student was in the cafeteria. Right. Over like three periods, you could get every student in, in school, pretty much. Uh -huh. uh, so I would have to do these uh, little promo things. And um, the way I realized that the only way to get their attention is to not be doing promos. So I would get up and I would start doing stuff off George Carlin's album. I would say, this is from you know, AM and FM, this is the piece called whatever, and I would get up and I would do a Carlin piece, or I would do a Robert Klein piece, I remember doing a David Steinberg bit. Uh, and I would just do these great things that I heard on albums that I memorized because I listened to them a million times right. anyway. Uh -huh. uh, and people would listen and they would laugh or whatever, and then I'd give my announcements and that would be it. So I kind of, in a weird way, got like stage time. Right. Even though it wasn't my material, right. whatever, I was still like, okay, this is not the first time I'm going to be actually performing in front of you know a couple hundred people. So that's how I kind of got my feet wet, and then I decided I wanted to, I wanted to try it, and I didn't know whether I wanted to do a sort of Robert Klein-esque kind of collection of bits mm -hmm. or a Woody Allen-ish kind of one long story. Mm -hmm. And you only had five minutes, right? You know, so it could, I couldn't go either way. Uh, and I literally had both in my pockets, and I didn't know what to do. And uh, I decided at the last minute that the only, everybody else was doing a Robert Klein type collection of bits, and nobody had done a story, so I went, okay, I, I'll do a story. And um, it was the most devastating experience. Yeah, I am on that stage, at the legendary improv, and I heard about it on TV all the time. That's how I knew to go to the improv was because everybody they would be talking to Carlin or Pryor or Klein or anybody else who you know was a young stand-up at the time that they right. would say, like, 
oh yeah, I started out at the improv, you know, or I work at the improv when I'm here in New York, or come down to the improv. And so I was like, went to the phone book, remember those? And I called them up and I said, how do you become a comedian? And they said, you know, well, first uh, write an act and then come to uh, try out here uh, every Sunday. Uh, you, we start signing, you know, you, you, the line starts forming at like 8 a.m. Oh my God. We hand out numbers at like seven, and then when your number is called, you go on. So the first night I went on, um, and you couldn't leave, you know, it was, you just had to wait your place in line. And there were people that had been there every week for years, and um, wow. wait on line that whole day, and it was like a whole negotiation if you had to go pee during yeah. the day, you know? <laughs> um, um, Anyway, I got a number, and it was a very, very high number. It was uh -huh. a lottery thing. Uh -huh. And um, the MC was amazing. He was so funny. And I was just like, you know, this is great, not just because I'm getting to see this guy. And um, at about 3 o'clock in the morning, because back then they'd stay open until 4 a.m. Right in New York, they could stay open, right? Or until the last audience member left. Right. So they stay open. On audition night, everybody's there. We're still waiting to get on, so there were always people there. Right. And um, at about three o'clock in the morning, I went up to the MC and I said, "Listen, um, my number's not for a few, but I was wondering if maybe I could go on earlier because I have school in four hours." <laughs> and he thought that was hilarious, and he cracked up and he brought me up next. And that wow. Was and I got to tell Jay Leno that story on the Tonight Show. He was the guy. What? Yes. Stop it! Yeah. What? Um, uh, I love this story. Um, yeah, it was a great night when Jay. Remember the night of the blackout? Yeah, of course. Well, Jay Leno drove his motorcycle into the improv down the the aisle and turned the headlight on, and we still did a show in the headlight oh of Jay's. I have goosebumps. I know it was oh so cool. Oh my god! It was so cool. <laughs> yeah. That's so crazy. Um, um, but where, where was I going with that? Did Jay, of course, he couldn't have possibly remembered. Uh, yeah, I don't think so, but. Um, what a great story. Uh, and he was amazing. Yeah. You know? This is back in the day when he did Elvis. His, oh God. <laughs> Do you remember that? No. His People don't realize that he, he was he, one of the best that he, ever lived. He was an unbelievable, and he was so dark, and he was so, so edgy. Funny. So he edgy. He was, he yeah. was so he was edgy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was um, fantastic. He was he was one of those people that never miss if he's going to be on Dave or whatever. Never miss Jay. So anyway, so I did this story. I chose to do the story, okay. and um, and it was horrific. And I'm so sort of <laughs> standing on this stage, and you know, if you've never been on the improv stage, I can't describe to you what it is. Um, it's very low to the ground. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the audience is just shoulder to shoulder, packed in little tiny little postage stamp cocktail tables, and uh, and a fucking super trooper spotlight at the back of the room, which is only about 50 feet away. Not even, it's maybe 30 feet away. Okay. So I just this huge, like a train coming down the track at me <laughs> and death, just death, 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 death. And I what was What was the premise of your story, do you remember? I'm sorry. I do remember. I, uh, it had to do with finding. Uh, it had to do with being under the impression that um, being interested in a girl, and I went out and I bought a, a, a new suit to take her on a date, and I was convinced that she had slipped a piece of paper in my pocket, 
and uh, or I was going to ask her. I don't know what this, I don't remember, but there was the slipping of a piece of paper in the pocket, and there's a whole build up to it. And by the end, as I read it, it said inspected by number twenty four because oh. it was a new suit. Yeah. Uh, um, and so the bit went nowhere, and rightfully so. <laughs> but that horrific experience, mm -hmm. I walked off that stage going, I can't wait to do this again. Oh wow! And that's weird. That's weird, but that's how I, you know, that's that's how I knew. Yeah, I, I, I got to do this because that was it was horrible. And so, were you the guy standing out online, like going to school, not having slept, yeah. and doing that? Yeah, all? yeah. yeah. Uh, in fact, um, there was another friend of mine at school. His name was Ron Palumbo, and he happened to be a brilliant artist. Mm -hmm. uh, um, just he could draw anything in no time, and he was just brilliant and very funny. He used to do cartoons all. All the time, and he was very, very funny. Uh, and uh, I talked him into coming and waiting online with me, and I wrote material for him to do so that I could at least watch someone who I knew was funny do the material for me because I was only getting five minutes at a time. And so, so you were writing see, ahead of yourself. I, I would get to see ten minutes. Wow, um, smart, um, smart. It was, it was really fun. Uh, it was really fun. And for him, it was just a lark. For him, it was mm -hmm. like, ah, yeah, you know, this is this is hilarious. Sure, I'll do this. Uh, and he did that a bunch of times. Um, and yeah, I was just there. So, what time. what was what was a, what was your first turning point? Would you say like when? How did you know? I mean, you knew at that very first time this is what you wanted to do. But I can imagine that the first time that you killed or got that. Well. Um, or did it come in dribs and drabs? Well, that's the thing is, is um, uh, first I went to the, the, the first couple of times I went to the improv mm -hmm. were, you know, with a lot of space in between them. Um, uh, but I was at school at this point. I was at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and I would drive up to mm -hmm. try and do some improv spots, which I couldn't do all the time. Um, but while I was at Penn, I started to put together these shows with other funny friends of mine. Uh, I, I was in a performing group at Penn called Mask and Wig. It's sort of like, you know, Hasty Pudding mm -hmm. or Princeton, uh, uh, what do they call it? I forget. Um, uh, it was, you know, a, a, a theatrical company that had been around since, you know, 1860-something. And, and you're studying theater? No, I wasn't studying oh. theater. I was, um, uh, first I was studying philosophy, and then I changed my major, and I was studying biology. And then I decided that an opportunity came up where I was able to study in London, so I decided I would. That's a whole other story. Okay. Uh, anyhow, they didn't have a theater department, but I still ended up with a theater degree because oh. that's how annoying I am. When I set my mind to it, I annoyed them into giving me a degree that they didn't even have yet. It's wow. a long story. Anyhow, um, uh, so I was performing in Mask and Wig with people like Barry Fabius and Sam Domsky from uh, um, Sagan Domsky, actually he wasn't in Mask and Wig, uh, uh, Jim Levi, Peter Luftig, Rex Morgan, these guys were hilarious. And um, we would get together in different permutations and put together these shows. Um, and uh, I ended up meeting Bob Meyer and Bob Young who went on to become successful Hollywood writer-producers. In fact, uh, they did a little show called Roseanne, mm -hmm. way back then. Mm -hmm. A million other shows, I'm not doing them justice, but they had just graduated, and they were doing stand-up as a team together, mm -hmm. and so I, I hooked up with them, and we were doing shows and all that sort of stuff. 
uh, and Bill Brunfest, who oh, yeah. uh, went on to open the Comedy Cellar in New York. He was at Penn. And um, uh, so I, when I would go to the improv in mm -hmm. New York mm -hmm. to go to open mic nights, I had been getting lots of stage time, but that, that you know, right. I, I had been part of making happen and whatever. Um, but I got more stage time than anybody else that was on that line because where were you going to go in 1975 for stage time, you know? So um, I developed a little bit of an edge and I started to get better than the competition. Uh-huh. Um, and then, um, as you said, drinking ages 18, I had a rat skiller at the university. And uh, somehow, I don't remember how this happened, but somehow I ended up with a steady Saturday night gig at the Rathskeller. And so I would write a new half hour every week. Wow. To deliver wow. at the Rathskeller. This was all before I knew how hard this was. Right. So, um, of course, it was a lot of inside stuff. It was a lot of stuff about the university. It was a lot of mm -hmm. stuff about, you know, that the students at Penn related to. Right. It's a lot of that. But in, the, in every half hour of that, there would be maybe five or ten minutes of material that could go elsewhere. Uh, and that's how I built my repertoire. And then wow. after about a year or not about a semester of doing that, uh, I went and auditioned at the improv and passed and became uh, a regular. And that was one of the most important days of my life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so. And then. Yes. I would, I'd never got on at the improv because if you were on, if, if you were a regular at yeah. then, uh -huh. back, back then, uh, there was there was a hierarchy, and right. you would have to come and just hang out until there was an open spot, and nobody else that had become a regular even a day before you was there. Oh. So you could be waiting to go on. It could be two thirty in the morning, and then you know somebody else could walk in, and they finally tell you you're up on deck, and you're waiting to go up, and you got like two minutes left to go on. And somebody else could walk in, and they put them under the light and signal to the MC that this person that had been a regular before you came in, and they would come on. So you'd spend every night there waiting, 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 waiting. Um, but you also get to see unbelievable mm. amounts of comedy, and you never knew if you were going on or not. So you mm. had to stay focused, and and so you were really present. But. Um, really hard to get on because mm -hmm. there were so many great comedians that had been there for years already and, and would just pop in. And, uh, so much so that once I became a regular, I almost never got on stage. So I started going back and waiting online with the audition comics. Wow. Because I would at least get five minutes. And uh, I did that a bunch of times. And then Chris Albrecht, who was managing the club at the time, but had already moved out to L.A. when I... Hi, Ross, Mark, if you're watching, Ross. Is... Yeah, man. So Bud had already come out to L.A. Um, and so Chris Albrecht was managing the club. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, he saw me out there and he's like, what are you doing on this line? And I told him, I said, I can't get on. I, just, I you know, I'm here almost every night and I, I can never get on. So I figured, he said, get five minutes. And we got this. And he was like, oh. And then a couple of nights later, they made Sunday nights, rookie nights. They made it for, that's the night when all the, the new regulars, the people who never get nice. on, they go, aren't you know, strong enough to get on, they can go on, or it might have been Monday nights, I forget. Uh, so that was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, and it was all just stabbing in the dark. You know, when you're starting comedy, back then I'll say, 
uh, now I think it's different because I think now there's such a plethora of unique voices. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's so overwhelming that I think young comedians now are getting the sense of originality is kind of important mm -hmm. from the get-go. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that whatever voice they have is it's really coming more from within them. Uh, than ever before, but um, certainly in my generation, and for many generations after me, uh, when you started doing stand-up, you basically did an impression of a stand-up comedian. Right. You did an impression of somebody who knew what they were doing. And you often, you know, I had Robert Klein's cadence and rhythm and the way he would lean in on a joke. <laughs> I, I had that down pat. You know, there were a bunch of Larry Miller, myself, Paul Reiser, people you say all the time, you're the same guy. You're all doing Robert Klein. Uh, um, uh, you know, People would do some sort of impression, but that's how you learn right. how to write, and it's how you learn the craft, and how you learn, you know, what works for you, and eventually that all that fades away, and you become your own voice. Um, but that was how you, you know, you really sort of learned how to do comedy because there was no, there was no other way. You had to at least deliver some jokes that people understood, which meant you had to, when you knew nothing about what you were doing. You had to steal a form. You had to steal a performance style. You had to steal, uh, you know, uh, and put it together your own way just so you could do the stage. And so what do you think, so because this is the road taken and it's, it's people's stories of how they did it, for people that are watching now who have aspirations to do comedy, what, what, uh, what's the formula now? Because it is a different terrain. It is a different terrain and, 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 and a great one. I don't decry it at all. I think it's fantastic. I think it really truly is a golden age. I mean, artistic, you know, there was a comedy boom in the 80s, but that was a, a business boom. Mm. The comedy boom now is a creative boom. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of really adventurous, interesting comedy happening and a lot of fearless people and a lot of people, you know, who now have a voice that never did and all that sort of stuff. And then styles or, you know, there is no one comedy. There's no sort of iconic comedy form. I mean, mm -hmm. what was it going to be now? Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, or Zach Galifianakis, Bo Burnham? What, you know, what is it? Uh, you know, back in the day, most of the people who were very well-known comedians were kind of similar. Mm -hmm. There was something kind of similar. Mm -hmm. You know, there wasn't as huge a difference between Phyllis Diller and Joan Rivers mm -hmm. as there, you know, mm -hmm. as there is now between any two other comics. You know. Um, uh, so, uh, but, but what really is the answer is what it's always been, which is stage time. Whatever it is, it's all about stage time. Stage time, stage time, stage time. Get on any stage you can get on. Get on as many stages as you can get on. It's a numbers game. It's a total and so now it's so different, though, because now there's this. Now yeah. there's the internet, right? So yeah. any comic can put themselves on a, t you know. Film themselves, put them, put it up on Bo YouTube. Bo Burnham, Bo Burnham had never performed like you know where he did his first live performance, <laughs> Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. He had his own solo show at the Montreal Just for Laughs, but had never been a live performer. Wow. Miranda sings, absolutely brilliant. You know, all online stuff. You know, so yes, that the, the dynamic so is different. Yeah, but, because they're not getting audience, they're not getting laughter. Well, I just have to quote Bo Burnham, what he said on, on, on The Green Room, which I thought yeah. was so perfect. He goes, for all those people who think that just, you know, because you haven't really, you know, worked it out in the trenches, you know, with other comedians, try reading, you know, 10,000 YouTube comments and see if you're not getting the shit beat out of you. You know, <laughs> so, 
<laughs> it's just a different iteration of the same yeah. thing. Interesting. Yeah, it is. So, okay, so, so you're doing stand-up, so then you start doing the road, you're doing 45 weeks a year, you're, you have this career, you have this life, but you also had other ambitions because you start yeah. to do a lot of other things. So how, how did that happen for you? Well, I also always wanted to act. I studied um, uh, at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, uh, an adjunct program. It wasn't the full three-year Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts program. It was a tutorial program. It was about like the first two years in a, a year. Okay. Uh, first year and a half in a mm -hmm. year. Um, and uh, so I went off and did that because there was no theater or drama department at the University of Pennsylvania. But they had been toying with a theater program. Mm -hmm. It wasn't ready yet. And they were starting the sort of the beginnings of a theater program, which was interdiscipl interdisciplinary. There's some people from the English department, some people that happen to have the Annenberg uh, Center for the Performing Arts there. It's a beautiful, beautiful, at the time, state-of-the-art theater mm -hmm. facility. Um, and, uh, you know, they got some technical people from, from there to teach some courses. And, and, and uh, so it was the sort of the beginnings of a program. And I just asked them what they needed to complete the degree. Like what, you know, what is it that you're not offering uh -huh. that would make a degree acceptable? And um, they told me, I mean, they had the whole thing broken down, you know, and, and, um, and they were just proving to me that I can't get a theater degree. But then I found this program at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts that I was able to do my junior year abroad and study there. And I came back and I said, okay, all of those things that aren't in, that you're not ready yet, I did. And here's all my, you know, blah, 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 blah. And um, after uh, a standing appointment every Wednesday for a year, I was in their offices <laughs> going, we're going to do this again next week. We're going to do this again next week. Or can we just do this and get this over? Because I'll be here every week until we figure this out. And uh, eventually they just said, you know what, we can't argue anymore. You did everything that we said we were going to do, and yeah, so you have a degree. So I have a first theater arts degree from the University of Pennsylvania. Wow. Before they put the program in place. And so they put the program in place a few years after that. Um, uh, but really, I just wanted to go study at the Royal Academy. <laughs> Which was fun. Yeah, it's breaking my daughter. She's at NYU at Tisch, and, and she would have loved to have done that. Oh, it was torture. It was torture. It was devastating. They, they break you. They break you down. They destroy you. I mean, you have nothing. You're nothing left. It doesn't matter. You could be the greatest actor ever, and they will not give you that. Any aspect of that, you are the worst. They just to strip everything away, and it turned out to be great. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just break everything down. All your notions. All your ego. All they just tear you down wow. uh, and make you start searching for the truth and sort of being real, as well as teaching amazing craft and technique and all that sort of stuff. Um, and to this day, I don't know how many years ago is that? That was 77. So how many years are we talking? 40 something years later? To this day, I will still be on a set doing something and all of a sudden be like, oh, that's what that was about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, so I wanted to do that. So okay. when, when um, uh, I started working at the improv, uh, and Chris Albrecht, uh, he, at that point in time, mm -hmm. he probably was the person on earth that knew the most about stand-up comedy. Wow. He certainly knew more comedians than anybody else on earth, mm -hmm. because they had all come through his doors. Right. Uh, I mean, he knew, if 
exactly what he was in charge of. He knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, he had amazing taste. Uh, he was harsh for me. He was like a father figure to me. Mm -hmm. My father died when I was 17. Mm -hmm. I passed at the improv, I think later that year. Mm -hmm. uh, no, the next year, something like that. And um, uh, and he was like, you know, cool your jets. And I'd be like, I can't get on stage. He'd be like, well, maybe you can't get on stage. You're not good enough yet, you know? All that kind of stuff. He was a real, uh, uh, was great. Mm -hmm. It happened to be for me, and I don't remember exactly what I needed. Uh -huh. uh, but anyway, um, why did I bring up Chris Albrecht again? So wait, so 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 you did you were doing this? Oh yeah. So Chris Albrecht okay. had a contract with ABC. The okay. ABC talent department actually put Chris on the contract because they they saw that you know the whole, the whole comedians. Uh, Segwaying into TV, right? And that that was you know that was old show business. You know that was the Jack Benny show. That right. was way back. That was the beginnings of television. Right. Uh, and they saw that that was happening again. Mm -hmm. uh, Freddie Prince was a big mm -hmm. example of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so they put Chris under contract to give him, you know, to give them the ABC talent department heads up on who the new young comedy talent were. Uh huh. And uh, at some point he would do a showcase for some ABC people, and they would videotape it, which was very high-tech at the time. Right. Um, and, um, and keep it on file. And at one point, he asked me to do one of those, and I did. And about six months after that, I get a phone call, and they say, we'd love for you to come in and read for this pilot. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, and so you were living out here? You were no, living, no, still in New York. Okay. I'm living in the Bronx. I'm living in my parents' basement. <laughs> uh, well, my dad had just died. So mm -hmm. My mother was uh, living in the house alone. My sister was gone already. I was living in the basement and commuting. Mm -hmm. um, that was the other thing. I had a car because when my dad died, I inherited his car. Mm -hmm. And that helped a lot because all these satellite gigs in New Jersey. Because then you could do New Jersey. Island, yes, yes, yes. On Richard yes. Circuit, mm -hmm. all the Long Island stuff, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the Ground Rounds mm -hmm. in Jersey and mm -hmm. all that. And uh, I had a car. So I got a lot of gigs that I probably shouldn't have been getting because I had a car and I could drive everybody out there. <laughs> so that helped a lot too. Right. Uh, anyway. Um, so he put me on tape and somebody at ABC went through the tape. And I went and I read for this pilot, and I got it. And they called me and they told me, you got this thing. And they said, but here's the thing. You have to leave for Los Angeles like tomorrow because there's a hot set. They had already shot the pilot and they were recasting the lead. Wow. So there was a hot set and they had to recast the thing. So they, they was, this thing came down like that. You, you got the lead? This thing came down so fast, I didn't know what the hell was happening. So Chris Albrecht had had moved out to Los Angeles already at this point, and he became an agent at ICM. Mm -hmm. And before he left, he said to me, hey, if there's anything, anything I can ever do, feel free to call any time. So I called him and I said, Chris, this thing happened. I got, I, I got, I got a pilot and I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. And he's cracking up, he's, he's dying laughing because I was like, and um, uh, he said, let me check this out. I'll get back to you. So he called around by the founder of the project. The studio was universal. Blah, 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 blah. He called up and he said, I'll negotiate the deal for you. And uh, I'll, you know, I'll take you through all of this when you get here. I come out. I shoot the pilot with Charlie Fleischer. He's co-starring mm -hmm. on it. So I met Charlie Fleischer in 1980. 
um, uh, a couple of other people. Um, the great old character actor, George S. Irving, was on it. Do you remember George Irving? I, I'm thinking that I do. I, I'm getting a mental picture, but I'm not sure if I'm right. Right. Anyway, um, uh, the pilot itself was whatever it is. Okay. Uh, it, it didn't go. But Chris Albrecht said to me, uh, listen, I think you should move. I, th I flew out, I shot it, I came back. Uh, he said, listen, I think you should move out here right now. And I said, but Chris, when you left, you specifically said, because when he left, he kind of, he signed a bunch of people. He mm -hmm. signed Joe Piscopo. Mm -hmm. He signed Rick Overton, I think. He signed, um, well, he ended up working with Eddie Murphy, who was already at ICM. Mm -hmm. um, he signed Sandra Bernhard, mm -hmm. uh, a handful of other people. Maybe, maybe even Charlie Fletcher, I don't know. Uh, anyway, um, uh, Brant Van Hoffman. Uh, and he said to me, he said, listen, I want you to know that, um, you know, things go the way I hope they go. Uh, I hope to bring you out sometime too. He said, but you're not the first wave. You know, he said, I, I, there's some people that I, I feel I can really work with right now. Because mm -hmm. what he was doing at ICM was sort of a triple threat department. Mm -hmm. Was people that could act, that could write, that could perform. Uh, so, uh, obviously that whole roster of people. Uh, and, um, so when he said to me after I did the pilot, which did not get picked up, he said, I think you should move out here. And I go, but you told me yourself that you didn't think I was ready. He goes, yeah, but now you are. It's six months later. He goes, mm -hmm. now I guess you are because you already you know, starred in a network pilot. He goes, you have a fresh face. You got tape on you. Mm -hmm. uh, he's like, I think you should strike while the iron is hot. Mm -hmm. So I moved out to LA knowing nothing about show business, knowing nothing about the TV business, nothing about, I, I still don't know anything about the movie business, but I, I knew nothing. I, all I wanted to do was do stand-up. Mm -hmm. And um, it happened, uh, so I came out here uh, and I ended up with a development deal. Wow. And that development deal, basically they gave me a, enough money to live on for a while mm -hmm. to not work. And um, I just started going on the road because the comedy boom was starting to pick up. I moved out here out in here? There was a comedy boom out here? Well, you know, there the were, when I moved out here, there were five laugh stops, six laugh stops. Louise, were, were, you doing, you, were you running around doing stand-up? Because Louise was a comic also. I didn't start doing stand-up till the 90s. Okay. Um, uh, and the comedy boom was happening. More clubs were opening up uh, around the country, whatever. And then I started getting... John Davidson, Dinah Shore, Merv Griffin. Yeah, I, I didn't do Mike Douglas. Um, all the talks, the daytime talk shows. That's where a lot of comics got their first mm -hmm. TV stand-up mm -hmm. spots. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did a bunch of those. And then as the comedy boom was taken off, you know, it turned out to be enough credits and I started to get better and better and better. And I started to, you know, become reasonably good mm -hmm. as a comedian. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then I was gone 40 weeks a year. So I was getting paid to not work, basically. The network was supposedly was supposed to you know, develop a project for mm -hmm. me, but 99 times out of 100, they don't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then I would just go on the road. And, um, and then every year I would go on the road and I'd try and come back as much as possible for pilot season. I think I did a pilot every year for five, six years. Mm -hmm. And then didn't do pilots for a couple of years. And then I did another one every year, year and a half or whatever. Yeah, it, was, it was like, uh, somebody once said I may I, I may be the closest to George Clooney. If George Clooney is the guy who wins the prize for having the most failed pilots, <laughs> he might be the second most. Um, 
uh, and then things just happen. But um, so, what was the first uh, real TV gig? And and we, you know, we were gonna have to have you back because we've been talking for uh, like forever. Oh my god! So and we I'm so gotten, bored of me. Well, we already. haven't we haven't even gotten to the tip of your career. But so, what was the first big TV thing? Uh, the first big TV thing um, was probably uh, Merv Griffin. As an actor. Oh, as an actor. Oh, um, you mean other than failed pilots? Yes. Because that's my specialty. No, because then you actually started to work, and you had quite a role of working. Yeah. Um, Before Empty Nest, there was something. Yeah, there were a few things. I did a couple of... Um, well, I did have a pilot that did get picked up, mm -hmm. and it ran for 12 episodes. That's nice. Uh, and um, But that's another whole story, where I became the guy that the network said, we'll pick up the show if you get rid of him. Exactly how I got my first pilot. Wow. That happened to me on this on this pilot. Uh, and um, so I did that pilot. The network said, we'll pick it up if you replace the lead. They replaced the lead. And then the producers call me back and go, we hate the guy who's the lead now. We want you to come back. We're going to ABC right now to tell them either we're going to pull the plug on our own pilot or we bring you back. And in the interim, I had signed on to do semi-regular on Facts of Life which was not a show I wanted to do, but my agent said, look, you just got fired off with, you know, you just got fired yeah, off a pilot yeah. that got picked up because, uh -huh. because you were no longer on it. And, uh, and you'd be working again on a top 10 show immediately. It's like, that's what professionals do. Right. And that's a good thing to do. Even though it was work that I wasn't particularly, you know, thrilled about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because I considered myself the, you know, the young edgy comic yeah. and all that, yeah. Uh, but they make that same promise all the time. They go, well, you know, we want the show to get a little bit darker and edgier, you know. And we're thinking about spinning off this character, and we want to use you to help take a different direction. And then when push comes to shove, it's always like, oh, I see you mean TV edgy. Oh, got it. But um, yeah, so I don't know. I did a lot of episodics for uh, a long time until this, this one pilot. Uh, me and Brian Keith, mm -hmm. where me and Brian Keith were the two leads, um, uh, and it took place at a university that was a fictional version of the University of Pennsylvania. Nice. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I had an unbelievable time working on it. I loved everybody. The, Michael Whitehorn, who had produced uh, Family Ties, was the creative producer on it. We're still friends to this day. Um, uh, it just didn't go more than one season, and uh, but then you know that sort of ups the ante a little bit, and it's like, oh, if this network had him lead a series for a season, you know, the fact that it didn't go, there's a million variables as to why that might happen, right. but, you know, we, and so, and then things started to sort of accelerate, because that work begets work. Absolutely. For the most part, or did. I'm not sure anymore. <laughs> Yeah, it's a whole different, it's a whole <coughs> interesting world out there. And weird. so you created your own opportunities. So we're going to segue to that really quickly. Yeah. So Yeah, because so I used to get really frustrated. I used to get really frustrated doing sitcoms because this is how I describe what happened with me with sitcoms. It's um, at the risk of being very un-PC. Uh, I, I, I say I was like a light-skinned black after the Civil War. I could pass. So I would keep getting all of these mainstream middle of the road kind of things because I could pass, but that wasn't me at all. Mm -hmm. And it felt really like an ill-fitting suit and mm -hmm. I never felt like, like I'm really, 
in your element. In my element, or like, like yeah, this is really something I can inhabit, mm -hmm. or this is something that you know I can actually um, uh, uh, soar with. I always felt like I was just kind of doing something that somebody else wanted me to do, that that had nothing to do with me. I just got a gig because it also, you know. You don't be an asshole. It's fucking work in show business on television. You do it. You don't. You know. Um, um, but I was starting to feel like, ah, is that right? I don't know. It's it's very hard. The values become very confusing. So how did you? What was your first breakout from that where you created your own opportunity? Um, well, I wouldn't say I created this opportunity, but I will say that I went against the grain to do it. There was a play called Only Kidding, mm -hmm. that was written by Jim Gagan, mm -hmm. who had been in a comedy team called Gagan and Fine, that I used to hang out with at the Improv mm -hmm. when, I, when I was starting out. Mm -hmm. And this play was about comedians, mm -hmm. and uh, I just, I loved it. And I ended up involved with the project and stayed with it, and ended up running in New York for about a year and a half. Uh, and then about a year went by, and then it ran here for about four or five months or something like that. Uh, and everybody told me I shouldn't do this. I mean, all my agents and managers said, "What are you going to do? You know, a play in an off-off Broadway house?" And blah, 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 blah. You know, like nobody was really because it was all about TV. It was all about being here for pilot season, being right. here for this, being here for money, that. money, 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 money. Yeah. Uh, just, just the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. um, um, but that really made a big difference. Doing that play was huge. It was huge for me, for my soul. Mm. Um, I felt like I was doing something that um, was different than what anybody else would do with it. And uh, it was a tremendous chemistry with my uh, co-star mm. in, in uh, Andrew Hill Newman. Uh, and it was just really, I just felt like every, we would improv a lot in, not a lot, but there were moments in the play that mm -hmm. allowed us to improv mm -hmm. and play with each other and I was mm -hmm. really on my toes all the time. It was a very exciting, uh, creatively stimulating thing mm -hmm. to do. Uh, and we became kind of the weird toast of the comedy town because mm -hmm. it was about comedians mm -hmm. and everybody came to see it, you mm -hmm. know. And, uh, um, and uh, it got a lot of respect and uh, um, it was nice to be in New York doing theater and, and, and receiving you know, real positive accolades and encouragement. Uh, so that really helped a lot. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that was kind of, again, it's not, I didn't create that project, but I, I, I feel like I was part of it mm -hmm. being created because it was a very organic thing when, when we all got together in the room. Uh, but then, then as a result of that, um, from the local profile that mm -hmm. I had in New York, um, which was where Comedy Central offices were located, mm -hmm. I ended up with my show in Comedy Central. So that's how that kind of snowballed. So okay. if I hadn't gone to do that play, they wouldn't have known anything about me right. because they weren't even in LA yet. Wow, <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Okay, so Paul, to our audience of people out there, of artists, of creative people who are seeking a path. You created your own path many times over. You have. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, and you've given us you've given us innumerable examples tonight, and we haven't. We've, we're only at the, the tip of you. There is so much more. It's but, important to get to the part where I'm broke. Like we can't leave that out of this equation. 
because whatever I have to say has to be in full disclosure in the context of. <laughs> you know, and that's that we were talking about that before we went on the air about, you know, I, I am, you know, creatively successful and I am the most underachieving financial person in the world. So it's, it's okay, so merging creativity and commerce, which is, you've managed to do that many times. I have, but I can't help but feel like that was just good fortune. Um, it was never your goal. No, it was never my goal. In fact, it wasn't until I started running out of money that I knew how much money I ever had. Mm. Because I'm not very mercurial. Mm. I don't wear fancy clothes, I don't drive fancy cars, I, I never, I, you know, I, I'm just not that. I was on the road all the time. I was all about the comedy, all about the work. I knew I didn't have to worry about money, mm -hmm. but I didn't have to worry about money because I wasn't stupid. Yeah, and I didn't. I didn't care about things. I didn't care about fancy cars, jewelry. I used to go to discount malls to buy my suits for the Tonight Show. I paid like eighty dollars for a suit for the Tonight Show. All my friends were buying, you know, six hundred dollars, seven hundred dollars suits. You know, I, I just wasn't that kind of person. Uh, so money just represented freedom to me. Uh huh. And. Um, in fairness, one of the reasons why my financial situation is what it is now mm -hmm. is because I took a whole bunch of time to develop things like the green room and my set list, mm -hmm. and I wasn't making any money. Mm -hmm. And all the money that I had made at one point went Financed. to all of that and keeping me going, not making money for a long, long time. Okay, so, so it's all my own choices, except for the fact that you know, it's all my own choices, except that now it's like, okay, so I'm gonna have to figure out how to make some money in show business. And I can't understand show business. I, don't, I can't even get my head around And meanwhile, the choice that you're making now to do this documentary is obviously not something that's going to bring no, in it's the totally bonanza a passion of, project. It's right, totally and, a passion project. but it seems like everything that you've done, so, some the byproduct has been money in many instances, but that's never been the goal. So. No, in fact, I've done things for money, mm -hmm. and I was never really happy. Uh, like I said, the whole thing about like going down this mainstream sitcom world. Right. Now, in fairness, at the time, there wasn't much else. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, that you couldn't go. Well, let me let me do something more edgy on IFC. It didn't exist. Right. You know? Right. So you were kind now of, there are a lot of choices. Now there are a lot mm -hmm. of options, a lot mm -hmm. of choices, a lot of people mm -hmm. to work with. Mm -hmm. You know that you you can end up being you know uh, Louis Anderson or Zach Galifianakis on a show like Baskets. Mm -hmm. Now you know. That but also, <clears throat> excuse me, a, lo a lot of people are creating their own projects now because right. there are ways to do that now. Right. And then the lucky few who get picked up and it turns right. into something. And you know, you can actually make a pilot now. Exactly. And it costs you virtually nothing. You can do it on, who was telling us about 10 I, uh, Barry Katz was here last week and he was telling us that, who went out and, and, and got, uh, Ten, he went out and bought a pilot with ten iPhones, ten, and then returned them the next day. Yeah, <laughs> um, ah, genius. Yes, and but do you remember when Hollywood Shuffle came out? Robert Townsend's Hollywood yes. Shuffle. How that the big story on that was that he financed it with credit cards. Yeah. Wow. You know, well, we had that was like the extent of innovation in terms of you know getting something done that you can't. The guy do. who did uh, the Florida Project, mm -hmm. Chris Burgoff, was here, and he was saying that. They they exist on credit card debt from right. from movie to movie to movie. They right. made Tangerine on i on iPhones, and right. they they do credit card debt till the next one. They're they're not making, and they, it was nominated for an Oscar. Right. right? Well, here's what it boils down to, and why okay. and why I'm not. So let's really, give people the the the, the skinny. Know, 
the full disclosure notwithstanding, here's the thing, what it boils down to is the work. Mm -hmm. That's what made it all happen to begin with. I wanted to do comedy. I didn't want to do comedy in Vegas. I didn't want to do comedy, you know, to release an album. I didn't want to do comedy to be, well, of course you want to be on The Tonight Show, but, mm -hmm. but it was about doing, I wanted to do comedy. Mm -hmm. And I didn't care whether it was, you know, 20 people in the basement at the Triple Inn, mm -hmm. you know, or... God, the Triple Inn. Uh, I did comedy at the Triple Inn. I know Inn. you oh did, right. God. So, you know, oh I didn't God, care if it, was, if it was the Triple Inn right. or if it was, you know, Caesars Palace in Vegas. Mm -hmm. I was doing comedy. And but that isn't that was something you I, could do again? Yeah, hang on. That, that was my aspiration. My aspiration was to do comedy. Right. My dreams, my fantasies were to do comedy at all different kinds of levels and all different kinds of ways. I've actually achieved a lot of them, mm -hmm. but my point is that what I wanted to do was comedy. Right. And um, um, so it ultimately becomes all about the work. Mm -hmm. and, and I did so much work that I did, didn't really feel connected to. Um, a lot of that has to do with my just my evolution as a human being. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, it took a long time. I was already in show, but I was in show business by the time I was seventeen, mm -hmm. and you know, I was on TV by the time I was twenty-one, mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't know anything about any of it. Mm -hmm. So not only did I have to figure out the business, but I had to figure out the business, and in that age range of the twenties to you know thirties, where you're trying to figure out who you are anyway. Right. Uh, uh, um, uh, but. If you focus on the work, and you never forget that that's what the work is, and here's the perfect, I mean, that, that's what the whole point is, is that I am making a living telling the jokes I wrote. That's what I always wanted to do, let go of everything else. If I can do that, then I have done exactly what I've, the most important thing that I've ever dreamed of. Mm -hmm. um, that's the focus on it. Pendulette told me a fascinating story that just just was like this is it. No okay, we have to do this and wrap. I'm like, we're right. going into right. two hours. Well, here's now. a story that Pendulette told mm -hmm. me that when he and Teller, you know, Penn and Teller were originally a threesome called the Asparagus Valley Cultural Society, <laughs> and the third person who was an oddball musician, very interesting cat, he decided he didn't want to be in show business anymore, so he left. So then it became just Penn and Teller, mm -hmm. and they already had bookings on the calendar uh -huh. uh, as. The trio, uh -huh. and they were like, okay, they made the decision they were going to go and do it together. So they're doing a gig in Atlantic City, and they're looking through the through the paper, and they see um, Marty Allen and Steve Rossi are appearing in town, wow. but not in the casino, in the back room of an Italian restaurant somewhere in, in, in Atlantic them. City, right? Oh yeah, I know. They were like a household yeah. name. Oh, Nobody yeah. knows they, who they are. They, they were a household name. Nobody knows who they, yeah, I guess Nobody that's knows true. Who they are. Oh, they were hysterical. Uh, um, uh, yeah, they were hilarious. Uh, they were like... Um, the hair. Yeah. The hair. Like, if you can't get Martin Lewis, get, <laughs> get Alan and Rossi. Uh, anyway, they see that Alan and Rossi are playing in this Italian restaurant. They got a night off. And, and they just started working together mm -hmm. as, a, as a duo. Mm -hmm. And they go, let's go see Alan and Rossi. Great. They go... There's like 20 people there eating dinner, they're doing their show, it's going whoever it's going, whatever. But the fact remains, it's Alan and Rossi, they were household names. When we grew up, they were on TV every week. Mm -hmm. They were always funny, mm -hmm. accolades up the wazoo. Mm -hmm. And here they are in the back room, all these years later, of an Italian restaurant, and Penn and Teller are sitting there, and Penn turns to Teller, and he says, you know, 
in 30 years, That's us. <laughs> this could be us. Mm. And he said, and Teller sort of looked up, watched a few more minutes, and then leaned over and set the pen. I'm okay with that. Aww. And that is what it's all about. That's is that adorable. Alan and Rossi are doing what they do. Yeah. And the rest of it is, you know, there's a lot around that. That ain't an easy walk to walk. But yeah. that's what it boils down to. But you are doing what you want to, you will continue to do what you want to do. You will find a way to make it work. You'll find a way to have the money yeah. from you. Yeah. You do what you do. I'm doing what I want to do. Yeah, I'm I, a little old to do Santa Monica Boulevard, but... But, you know, there's got to be someone that's... I can cut my rates and work Santa Monica Boulevard. <laughs> I, could, I could beat the competition. Like yeah. that. Price-wise. I could be like yeah. the Costco. You just need the right corner. That's it. Well, Paul, it's been uh, a total treat. I mean, I could sit and listen to your stories. All, you have the best stories. Seriously? I could, I could listen to I, I feel like I just bored myself. No, absolutely. No, I, it was... It, I apologize. No, no, no. This was, this, was, this was business gold because it's the truth. I mean, everybody has their own level of what the truth is, but... Have, have you noticed doing, your, doing this show for as long as you've been doing it, have you noticed that everybody's path is different? That's why everybody's path thinking. is different. There's Every, nothing you can, you can get, you know... Everybody's path is different, but what the thing that feeds through all of them is the work. Yeah, it's, right? it's all of it. It's like, right. I don't want to talk to anybody that's not about the work. Mm. Anybody that was about the money or seeking the fame... I'm not interested. And we know them. We know some of them. Yes, we know a lot of them. Mm -hmm. But those... They get it. But I'd much rather be me. A lot of them get it. But I'd rather be me. I'm talking about the people that have managed to do it. The people that went in with that intention. Right. And I'm trying to... We we interviewed somebody who told us that they were only about... Peter Tolan. Uh-huh. Peter Tolan said that his in total. Wallum and Tolan. Tolan and Wallum when he was in that team. Wow! When he came on, he told us that his entire his entire his entire intention when he started was to write things to make money, right? That uh-huh. that was that was what fed him, uh-huh. and so he did all of that and managed it, and then he he went the other way, uh-huh. right? Then it became about. The work that fed him. Right, and, right. And well, that's the other thing is if you go and you make all the money and you get, you know, I lived for many years without having to worry about earning a living and could develop the green room, could develop the set list, mm-hmm. all that stuff, you know, and spend the money that it took to travel around the world with it and all that sort of stuff. I can only do that because I had made money. So there was a lot to be said for, you know what, you write that horror film that's going to sell. Right. You know, and you bank that, and then or you, you go write another that thing that you know that you, is, right, yeah. right. But you know, eventually you start the the problem. Then becomes like, what is your own integrity? Like, it's not easy. It's not easy to have integrity because you first you have to figure out what really matters and what makes you happy. And different things make you happy at different points in your life. Absolutely. But everybody always says, if you do what you love, the money will follow. Well, I'm still waiting I for know. that to be I true. Know. I wish so much that that were true. But I don't know. I can't complain because it did do what, you know, it did do that for me for many years. It did. Years. And also the thing is, you know, we, we have food to eat. We have a car to drive. We have a place to I live. Know. I, mean, we, I know. I know how we right? Right. Somehow we managed to do what we do. Right. And, 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 and. Yeah, so maybe it isn't the payday in the sky. I don't well, know. That's the thing: is what do you care about? You know, do you does do you have to have a three bedroom house? Do you have to you know maybe you shouldn't have a family if you can't afford one. If you care about 
other things, mm. you know? Uh, uh, those become really tricky questions, you know? But that's what it's all about, is like, well, what really, what defines success for you? So what are we tell so what are we telling people out there? So I think what we're telling I think what we're telling them. I think. I ain't telling anybody shit. I don't know. I'm the last person you should listen to. Well, I think it's about the work. I do. I ultimately think it's about the work. ultimately if you're passionate enough to be watching this podcast what is this called? A podcast? I don't call it a podcast. Yeah, no, I, I have that, that, com that conversation all yeah, the time. I call it a talk show. It's, it's a talk, talk show. show. So if you're watching this talk show that is shockingly a lot like a podcast, <laughs> uh, um, you're probably passionate about something creative, artistic, whatever the case may be. And if you are, in fact, that kind of a person, then do it. Just do that. Figure everything else around it. Instead of sort of trying to fit that into a life that pays the bills, Figure out how to fit a life that pays the bills into the thing that nourishes you. The most. I like that, and I, I think I, we're guess. Gonna, I think we're gonna go with that. I, I like that piece of advice. Thank you so much, Pat. Rebecca. Thanks for having me. I adore you, thank Bronx you boy. Yeah, and thank you for being with us. And next week we will be in the house of Paula Poundstone with oh. fourteen cats oh. having a lot of fun. And a million kids now too. Uh, tell her I said hello. Mm -hmm.